You've already heard from Pastor Ellis and Pastor Gunner about the excitement that we enjoyed at General Assembly this year. In case you hadn't heard about it, uh, a tornado touched down a half mile from the church where all of us were meeting and we had to, uh, we had to seek shelter. And it was, frankly, it was very exciting. I'd never done a tornado before. I told my daughter Rachel about it. Rachel is our daredevil. Rachel is the one who jumped off the highest bungee jumping bridge in the world. That's Rachel. So I told her uh, about the news, and she said, just my luck, the year I skipped General Assembly, you have all the fun. (laughs) Fortunately, other than a few uprooted trees and a little building damage, we emerged unscathed, but we sure had a great story to tell. Unfortunately, every week, every day, there are plenty of real tragedies that we read about, that we even experience ourselves. Even this last week, a boat full of immigrants that um, capsizes in the Mediterranean Sea, killing 650 people. Or a lunatic on a rampage in a Chinese kindergarten who stabs to death six people, including two kindergartners. Or an apartment building in Brazil that collapsed, killing 14 people. Or horrendous storms in Haiti that killed 51 and injured 140 people. Every day, every year, really every moment, our world is stricken by these terrible tragedies, these disasters. And honestly, one of the great obstacles to faith for some people is the problem of pain and suffering in the world. If God is real and if God is loving and if He's powerful then why does he allow all of this suffering to exist? And how can we make sense of all this tragedy? Well, it was tr- it's true today. It was true 2,000 years ago, too. And this morning, as we continue our journey through Luke's gospel, we come to a story that includes two very tragic headlines from the day. And the people want to know what Jesus will have to say about these crises. And his response might surprise you. So turn with me to Luke's gospel as we continue our journey through this beautiful gospel account. We're in Luke chapter 13. We will start with verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. This is the word of the Lord. Some more light and fluffy teaching from Jesus. This section is hard, isn't it? It is some hard stuff that we're plowing through, but it matters. This passage uh, is unusual for a couple of reasons. First of all, it might be the only time where Jesus is told something of which he was apparently unaware. I find that interesting. 
Here's the other thing that's unusual about it. It's unusual because instead of telling a parable, Jesus takes these two headlines of contemporary events and uses them to illustrate what he wants to talk about in his teaching. So let's start with the first incident. It was the incident about which Jesus was apparently unaware, and it took place in the Jerusalem temple. Every day in the temple, did you know this? Every day there were animal sacrifices. But did you know how often they had these sacrifices? 45 times a day. Every day. That's a lot of animals being sacrificed. So let's just pretend this, this building is our temple. Here's how it would work. No worshiper would ever show up with empty hands. And so you would show up with a sacrifice that you wanted to make. Maybe it was your lamb or it was your goat. And at the right time, I would tell you to come forward because I'm the priest. And you would lay your animal on the table, on the altar. You would lay your hands on it. You would pray about it. You would pray that your sin would be transferred to it. And then you'd take out a knife and you'd slice its throat. That's how you worshipped in those days. That's what an offering looked like back then. And my job as priest then would be to be have a little plate and I would be collecting all of the blood as it poured out and I would pour it on the altar and I would sprinkle it as was appropriate. Yummy, right? Aren't you glad that Jesus took care of the whole blood sacrifice thing because that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me. So there was a group of Galilean Jews who made pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the purpose of offering a sacrifice in the temple. And for some reason that we do not know about, Pilate got ticked at them. You remember Pontius Pilate, don't you? The Roman governor of Judea. Pilate had a terrible reputation for cruelty and for contempt for the Jewish religion and all that attended it. In fact, Pilate ultimately, because of his excessive harshness to the Jews, he was recalled to Rome by the emperor. Do you know who that emperor was? Caligula, the craziest, most sadistic loony to ever sit on the throne of Rome. Now, if Caligula thought you were too brutal for your job, that was saying something. That was Pilate. Pilate, his headquarters actually were above uh, the temple walls so that he could always be watching what was the hotbed, the seedbed of problems in Jerusalem. And apparently he saw something he didn't like, and so he assigned a squad of soldiers to go and to quell the unrest. And quell it they did, brutally. They slaughtered these Galilean pilgrims. And they mixed the blood of the pilgrims right into the blood of the animals that they had just brought to sacrifice. It's a horrific, horrific headline, number one, from the time. Here's, here's the second headline story. A collapse of a tower kills 18 people. This happened in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there's a pool called the Pool of Siloam. Here's a picture of it. Only a tiny portion of that has been excavated. And one of the interesting things about the Pool of Siloam is that one way to get to it is through a tunnel that was excavated by King Hezekiah through solid rock. If you are claustrophobic, you won't want to make this walk with me because you walk a third of a mile in a tunnel just like that. How many of you just freak it out just looking at that freaks them out? Some of you, that, that claustrophobia would take you out. Well, near Siloam, there was a tower, and apparently that tower 
tragically collapsed and killed 18 people. So, two tragedies, one by a despotic ruler and one by a terrible accident. If the Jerusalem Post had existed at the time, these would have been the headlines. If it bleeds, it leads. And the people are curious to know what this great rabbi, Jesus, will have to say about these terrible tragedies. And we discover pretty quickly that behind the questions they ask are really the two unasked questions. Here they are. Did God do this and did they deserve it? Did God do this and did they deserve it? Was God behind these tragedies in some way? And were these people being punished by God for something that they had done? And the fact is, people ask the same sort of questions today. What about these disasters? What about tragedies? What about sudden death? What about suffering? Is God behind all of this? And if He isn't, if He is an all-loving God, then why does He allow them? And I'll be candid with you, there is really not a satisfactory answer to this question of suffering and pain. Every, we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the fact that this is a hard and really, in some ways, an unanswered question. By the way, every religion has to come up with a way to respond to this. It's not just Christians that have to respond to this issue. But the Bible reveals to us that God is a loving God. He is all-loving. The Bible reveals to us that God is sovereign. He is in ultimate control of everything. The God, Bible reveals that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful and can do anything He wants to do. And we have suffering anyhow. And the Bible is mostly silent on why bad things happen to people. Mostly silent on this topic. The best that we can say is that when humanity rebelled against God way back in the Garden of Eden, the, the resulting fall had a terrible and enduring impact on all of creation. On humanity, of course, because it disrupted our relationship with God, with each other, and even with ourselves. But the fall also impacted even the very earth itself. The Apostle Paul says that the earth groans. Creation groans. And from the very first moment of our rebellion, our creation even, the world, the earth, has itself been groaning. Because essentially we told God, we don't want you to be our God. We want to be God. We want to call our own shots. And our Heavenly Father took His hands off of us for a time and said, okay, you think you can do better? Knock yourselves out. And that's what we have been doing for all of the time. We've been knocking ourselves crazy, trying to do better. There are times when God intervenes miraculously in a disastrous situation. There are times when He responds to miraculously to our prayers, which is why we offer our prayers to the Lord. And thank God there will be a time when Jesus returns and restores all of creation to its pristine state, what it was intended to from the beginning. But for now, but for now, the price that we pay, part of the price we pay for sin, is a very broken world. A world that includes tornadoes and building collapses and crazy, murderous people. We want God to explain Himself about these things, and He declines the offer. Apparently, God doesn't feel He needs to justify Himself to us. And some people find this very unsatisfying. They want to know the answer 
Is God in some way behind tragedy and suffering? The people asked Jesus. That was the first question. Here was the second underlying question. Did those people have it coming? These horrible things that happened to the Galileans and, and the Jews from Jerusalem, did they have it coming? Were those Galileans extra sinful that they would have that horrible fate befall them? And had the, those from Jerusalem, had they done something, was it a payback for them that that tower collapsed on them and killed them? And they asked that question because actually this was believed to be the case at the time. It, it, was, kind, it was believed that calamity and illness and catastrophe, even poverty, was somehow a spiritual payback for something that you or your loved ones had done. It was kind of like Jewish karma, honestly. It was payback for something that had happened, that you had done. And this belief, we see it uh, popping up in different parts of the gospel. When Jesus walked by the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, his disciples said, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his parents that sinned or is it something that he himself did? That is that same sort of question that is behind this. According to the current line of thought, Every bad thing that happens to someone was their own fault. It was divine retribution for their sins or for the sins of their loved ones. Jewish karma. Did God do this and did they deserve it? Those were the two underlying questions posed to Jesus in that moment. And how does he respond? Well, not as you might expect. Jesus says, you are asking the wrong questions. You're asking the wrong questions. In both instances, Jesus responds to that challenge with exactly the same sentence. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He doesn't really answer their, their question. In other words, he said, you're starting from a false premise. The issue here is not about whether they were worse sinners than others, or even whether God is executing judgment upon them, that is not the right question. In fact, he says, it's not even the right subjects of the question. This is not about God in this moment. It is not about others. Who is this about? It is about you. Jesus says, this is about you. He's, I think, saying this. It is easy for us to point at other people, point to their belief or their unbelief, to their misbehavior, to their calamity and catastrophe, and to become focused on that. And he says, don't do it. Don't do it. It is easy for you to demand that God answer all of your questions, and if he doesn't, then you're going to teach him a lesson by ignoring him or stomping away in petulance. But Jesus says, don't do it, because in the end, it is not about what others do, about what others believe about things horrible or otherwise that happen to other people. It's not even about God having to justify himself to you. In the end, it is about you. What do you believe about God and what are you doing about what you believe about God? In the end, it is about you. And Jesus does answer that question he does so with one word. I wonder if you saw it. It was repeated in there twice. What does Jesus say is the answer to their life of potential peril? Repent. Say it with me. 
Repent. Say it like you're a preacher up front. Repent. There we go. He said, you are concerned about the tragic death of these people. But he said, that is a distraction. That is a dodge. Because it turns out you too are on a perilous path. You too are headed towards destruction. And it may not be as spectacular as a tower falling on top of people, but it is just as surely death, just as surely tragic, unless you do this one thing, repent. We know the word, it's a a religious word, it is a punchline for a lot of jokes. But for Jesus, this is the word that separates life from death. It is the word that defines a life of blessing with God or a perilous, perilous life that ends in disaster and permanent separation from God. I tell you, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the original hellfire and brimstone sermon, and it comes right from the lips of Jesus. Repent, he says. So what does it mean? What is repentance? What does it mean to repent? This is what it means. You're walking in one direction, and you stop, and you turn around, and you walk the opposite direction. You're walking towards your peril, and you decide you don't want to perish. You stop, and you turn around, and you walk away from death toward life. That is what the word repentance means. It means about face. It means do a U-turn, stop going the direction you're going, and go a new direction. I've shared this story before with you, but it's perfect. i got to share it again. We were on a family reunion in Iowa at Lake Okoboji many years ago, and we decided to do a car caravan into the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul. And Cindy's sister, Connie, her car was behind us. It suddenly disappeared from view. So we kept driving and kept looking back, but they didn't catch up. And so finally, Cindy called her and said, Connie, where are you? She said, oh, We just stopped to take a picture, but we're back on the highway. Cindy said, but where are you? Connie said, we're we're passing exit number 85. Cindy said, 85? We just passed exit 55. Tell me your next exit number, Connie. And she replied, 86. And Cindy said, Connie, you are heading west. She said, no, 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 I'm sure I got on the right ramp. No, Connie, you didn't. You are headed west. You are headed in the opposite direction. No, no, it's okay. We will catch up soon. No, Connie, listen to me. You will never catch up. You are going the wrong way. There was only one solution to this, wasn't there? What was the solution? Repent. Connie needed to stop and turn around, believing that she was headed the wrong way and head in the exact opposite direction. And the Greek word for that is metanoia, repent, turn around. You're going the wrong way. In his book, Metanoia, Alan Hirsch says this about repentance. Correctly understood, repentance is not negative, but positive. It means not self-pity or even remorse, but conversion, the recentering of our whole life on the Trinity. It is to look not backward with regret, but forward with hope. 
And what Jesus seems to be saying in these two stories is, do not allow yourself to be distracted. Don't become preoccupied with all of those hard things that are above your pay grade. Don't allow the things that you don't understand, the things that God has not chosen to explain to us, to keep you from the things that God has made very clear to us. He has made clear to us that He loves us despite our broken state. He has made very clear that He has sent His Son to us to save us, to redeem us. And He's made it clear that if you will turn from your ways and repent and follow you, Him, He will lead you into eternal blessing. That is the gospel. And Jesus says, focus on that. And that life, a life of blessing and fruitfulness, He gives us an illustration of what that might look like in the next few verses. We continue, verse 6. And Jesus told this parable. He moves from headlines to parables. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking the fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, the gardener, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the gardener answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. We have a beautiful little Italian prune tree in our backyard. That fruit might be my favorite fruit. It has to be a little green. You don't want to let it get too mushy, but it has to be ripe enough to be sweet. And I will gorge myself to the point of diarrhea eating those things. <laughs> I've done it many times. No self-control when it comes to Italian prunes. And two years ago, we had a bumper crop. We had boxes and boxes and boxes. I had to buy a dehydrator because we could not keep up even with my eating habits. And so last summer, after that wonderful year, I, I was excited to, as prune season was approaching, and I went out to assess my harvest. Five prunes. Not five boxes of prunes. Not five handfuls of prunes. Five prunes. I was mortified. What had I done? Had I pruned it wrong? Had I underwatered it? What? Was it sick? I was disconsolate over my prune harvest. By the way, all year I've been watching to see what's happening out there, and I went out yes, last week and discovered I got all kinds of little prunes up there, so they're back, and I'm happy about it. But it did help me to relate very much to this parable. After three non-productive years, the owner is ready to chop down this worthless fig tree, throw it on the fire, but the gardener begs for one more chance. He says, give me one more year so I can loosen up the soil and allow the water to really get down there. One more year so I can pile on the manure and feed it well. And the owner ultimately relents, but he says, okay, one more year. And we aren't told whether or not the gardener succeeds. Will the tree bear fruit? Will it be chopped down and thrown into the fire? It is a horticultural cliffhanger. What does it mean? Most scholars believe that the fig tree represents Israel and that the gardener, the vine dresser, is Jesus. Three years he has walked among them. Three years he has worked to loosen the hardened soils of their hearts and pour 
onto them his living water. He has fed them and taught them, nurtured them, and yet they are still fruitless. And the owner, perhaps representing God the Father, is fed up, fed up with them, fed up with this fruitful, fruitless bunch. But the son, gardener, he begs his dad, give him one more chance, dad. One more chance. Let me do a little more work. See if they will finally bear some fruit. Jesus cared a lot about fruit bearing. In John, John chapter 15, he talked about us being the vine. He's the vine. We're the branches. He talked a lot about bearing, bearing fruit. And even in earlier in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, John the Baptist preached, uh, had a, a warning for all those hypocrites that were showing up to hear him preach and, and to be baptized. He said, you brood of vipers, you nest of snakes, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. How would you like that to be the call to worship here on a Sunday morning? Welcome, you brood of vipers! It wasn't very seeker-sensitive, but Jesus is saying essentially the same thing here. He says real repentance, not just lip service, real repentance produces fruit. Those who truly turn their lives around, those who truly do a, a holy about-face and follow Jesus as their Lord, their lives prove it. Every healthy tree bears fruit. Now, don't misunderstand me. We do not believe that you must earn God's love, God's favor, God's salvation. We don't believe it. Every other religion in the world does, by the way. Every other religion in the world is a works righteousness equation. At the end of your life, your life is going to be placed on a scale, and if your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff, then you win. We don't believe that. We don't believe we can ever do enough good stuff to earn God's favor and love because God already loves us. He already wants to show His favor to us. The, the incredible gift that we Christians offer to the world is a gift called grace, God's undeserved, unmerited favor. He already loves you. There's nothing you can do that would cause Him to love you more. He loves you broken as you are. God loves you wayward as you are. God loves you arrogant as you are. And Jesus has done all that is necessary for you to be saved. And you must repent. Christ has done it all. And you must repent. That is your part. You must realize by the power of the Spirit at work in you that you're going the wrong way. You must turn around and follow Jesus. You must repent. And true repentance, Jesus says, bears fruit. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus, your life is going to look different than when you were not a follower of Jesus. And people who see you are going to enjoy a crop of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All the fruit of the Spirit. In the two stories that we started with, those stories of tragedy with Pilate's murder of the Galileans and the Siloam Tower collapsing on those people. People wanted answers. They wanted answers that, that they did not get. They wanted God to explain himself, and he doesn't. God doesn't have to explain himself to us. But in this parable, we, we get a little hint at the Bible's answer to the problem of suffering and pain in the world. God may not explain it, 
but he has done something that no God and no religion has ever done. He's entered right into it. Our God doesn't stay distant and look at all that suffering that's going on. Our God and only our God, the Lord Jesus, entered right into our suffering, right into our pain, ultimately to the pain of the cross upon which he died. And that Jesus in this story says two things. First of all, he says to us, repent. You are going the wrong way. Turn around and follow me because the path you are on is perilous and will lead to disaster. That's what he says to us. But then, sweetly, Jesus says to his heavenly Father, just a little more time. Just a little more time. Just give me a little more time to soften their hearts and change their minds and save a few more for your family. There's a sweetness to that. And there are two questions I think that this message poses to us. And the first one, obviously, do you need to repent? There might be some here this day who have never turned towards Jesus. They've, they continue stubbornly and resolutely on a path that is leading you to destruction. And you even know it in your own mind. You know you're headed for a way that is not good. But you have not had the will, the courage to stop and turn around and give Jesus the chance to do what only Jesus can do. Maybe you need to repent. But even those of us who love Christ, even those of us who have turned our hearts over to him, we might have things we need to repent of still. And I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about Bible studies or speaking Christianese. I'm asking if you have reached a point in your own life where you realize the path that you are on is perilous and you need to stop and turn around. You need to repent. So what are the signs that your life might be heading in the wrong way? Do you have an anger problem that is frightening to those around you? Is your gossipy tongue out of control? Is your addiction to alcohol killing you or your family? Is your addiction to porn killing you or your family or to food? Is your marriage toxic? Do your children despise you? Or do they long for a love from you that you seem unable or unwilling to give? Are you going the wrong way? If you don't repent, if you don't turn to Jesus, lay your life before Him, whatever your religious trappings or claims, you will perish. That's what Jesus says. So the first question is, do you need to repent? And then, if you believe you have repented, here's my second question. Would anyone agree Anyone who knows your life, if you say, I have repented and I'm following Jesus, would anyone agree with your assertion? Would your spouse? Would your neighbors? Would your workmates or your children? Would anyone agree that, yes, he is a new creation. She is remarkably different. Does the fruit of your life bear witness to your claim that you are a follower of Jesus? Does your humility, your love, your generosity, your servanthood, does anything Display the genuineness of your repentance. If not, maybe you need to repent again. I shared first service. Pastor Gunner was leading us through the prayer of confession, and the Lord brought to me something of which I need to repent, a bitterness that has been growing up inside of me that I must repent of, or I know it will be perilous. 
Do you need to repent? How fruitful is your life? Repent, Jesus says. Repent and bear fruit that proves your repentance. That is the hard message behind this hard passage. Let us pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you meet us in these stories that are ancient but contemporary at the same time. We are still troubled by all of the brokenness we see in the world, all the suffering, the disasters. We still have questions. But we hear the voice of Jesus saying, stop focusing on that. It's a dodge. If you're using that as a, a way to avoid the way more important question, which is, have you repented? Because if you have not, you are on a road to peril. Jesus, right now, I pray for those who are here this day and would have to admit, at least between you and them, that they have never repented. They have never finally said, I cannot walk this road one more step. I have to go a different way. I have to trust that Jesus has a different way for me. And if that is you, listen to the words of Jesus. If you do not repent, you will perish as surely as these people did. If you do not repent and turn and follow Christ, you are heading to destruction. Right now is your moment to say, Jesus, I repent. I turn from my wicked ways and I turn to you and I ask you to forgive me and save me. Pray that right now. Jesus, I repent. I turn from my wicked ways and I turn to you and ask you to forgive me and to save me. And if you pray that prayer, you are saved. Jesus redeems you in that moment. I'll bet there are many others of us like myself who, although we have repented and turned to you, there are things in our life that do not reflect your glory. We would, we would confess with you. We would agree with you. We must repent of that behavior. Repent of that habit. Repent of that behavior, that relationship. So Jesus, I pray now that you would stir in every one of us an awareness of the, the way in which we need to repent and turn around and walk more faithfully, more fruitfully in your, within your ways. As you bring those things to mind, would you remind us that it is your spirit that sets us free, and may we be free indeed. For we pray it through Christ our Lord.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. rich and deep and complicated and intricate. There's so many things to be learned from it. One of the sweet things I think we learned from that last parable about the fig tree is the patience of God. The Bible says he longs that everyone would be saved. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. And this picture of the son saying, just give me a little more time, a little more time, a little more time. So God says, okay, you got a little more time. But the story of the first two tragedies is we don't know how long that time is, do we? None of us knows how long we have. None of us knows when we will breathe our last and we will call, be called to stand before the Father. And so certainly one of, the, one of the truths ought to be do not presume upon the grace of God. He loves you. He's patient. He sent his son to do the work for it. But you must repent and don't be dawdling about it. Don't put it off because you never know. So I pray that the Lord stirred something in your heart this day, whether it is to turn your whole life around or one area of your life that needs to be brought under the authority of Christ. Listen to what the Spirit is saying. Jesus says, repent, repent, and believe in the gospel. If you're new to us, please make your way to the wood wall. Pastor Julie 
I promise she doesn't bite. She's really nice, and she would love to make your acquaintance and let you know a little bit more about our church. You can leave your offering in the boxes on the way out. Thank you so much for your continued and generous support of all that God is doing here. Things like Vacation Bible School, be praying for that in this coming week as, as these kids, that they might come to, to know the Lord. If uh, you need prayer, you'll see two banners on either side here, and make your way up afterwards, and we have folks that would just love to pray with you. And then finally, back to what I said earlier, this is not about us gritting our teeth and trying harder and being good. All of this is about the grace of God working through His Spirit, and if we don't have enough of the Holy Spirit, we won't accomplish what God wants us to do. We won't bear the fruit that God wants us to bear. And so we do what we do at the end of every service. We get a refill on the Spirit. Raise your hands up and receive this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's fruitful people said, Amen. Amen.